Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. This is Brad Berlin, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV in downtown Waterbury, historic Waterbury. Studio here is amazing. There's pictures of musicians who have been uh, playing in Vermont for decades, probably 50 years worth of, of pictures of uh, all sorts of um, folks who have enriched Vermont in small-town concerts and uh, many of the names you would know. Uh, my morning started out, as usual, got up. Uh, our Norwegian elk hounds need to go out, and uh, I go into the barn with some water and throw hay to the sheep. Last night, late, I don't know when, the dogs were barking in the house, and uh, something was outdoors, and uh, we don't we didn't lamb this year, so I don't have little lambs in the barn. Uh, last year, in the middle of the night, when that happened, I would go out with the dogs, and often there would be four or five fox in the yard, uh, sort of um, moving in towards the barn. I don't know that they could, they would get a lamb, but um, our dogs, with a lot of uh, enthusiasm would chase the uh, fox away at full speed. And so it was really an aerobic uh, part of the fox's uh, evening. Last night, it looked like from tracks this morning, looks like deer came through the yard and uh, the dogs were, um, they hear everything. So they were pretty excited that something was going through. Uh, so we have a great show today. We're, we will be starting with uh, Mary Humphrey, who is a doula. And uh, we're going to learn all about um, doula services. She is, um, has full circle doula services is her business. And then um, Elliot Greenblatt's going to help uh, us with some issues that face seniors. He's AARP. And uh, National Consumer Protection Week is March 5th through the 11th. So there are a lot of things for seniors to be watching out for. And then at uh, 10.30, our good friend, uh, Governor James Douglas, is joining me. We're going to talk about town meeting in Vermont. Uh, Governor Douglas um, held so many hats of public service in Vermont, one of them being a moderator in Middlebury for decades. He and others uh, hold long, long stretches of time as moderator. And we'll talk a little bit about the role of moderator and how that uh how that uh, impacts Vermont. It's a pretty um, big responsibility, and uh, it really is about Vermont government at the local level and, and quite amazing. Uh, so I'm very excited to welcome uh, my first guest, Mary Humphrey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so um, Mary is a doula, but I also want to mention that um, Mary also plunges into the ice of Lake Champlain and uh, was kind enough to bring me along on two of them. That's and <laughs> we, we went into, into the very cold water and it's, it's quite exhilarating. What, when did you start doing that, Mary? I mean, so it's kind of my little secret that I've always done it, but usually only a couple of times a year. And for some reason this year, I've just felt the draw and I've been doing it two, three, four times a week, whenever I can get in. Well, it's quite amazing. Um, listeners, you, you take um, picks and, and stuff and break through the ice a hole big enough, and then 
you very calmly, calmly, because for, for us men, you don't want your, your body to think that it's going into an emergency and you <laughs> and suddenly have a heart attack and stuff. <laughs> so you have to trick it and go, Oh yes, I intended to go into cold water. <laughs> and it goes, Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't seem very smart, but I'll go with it. That's right. And, and, and what are some of the benefits from that? I mean, for me, it's such a mental health boost. I just come out soaring for the rest of the day. So for that, and then it's good for other things, adrenal stuff. There's all this like scientific stuff that it's good for. But for me, it's great for my mental health. Yeah. And I've felt with my achy old body that, you know, they always say ice things that hurt and your um, arthritis and stuff. Well, there's nothing like 30 degree water to <laughs> ice your body. Uh, didn't stay in very long when I did it, but, uh, I was, I was excited to, to try it out and we'll do it again. So doulas, um, it's not a term we hear a lot. Um, and, and maybe just start out with the very basics of what a doula is. So, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So doula is a Greek word that the literal word means woman servant. So you don't hear the word servant a lot these days. It kind of is taboo, I think, but the truth is that my heart is for service. Everything I do in life, if I'm serving, I feel really um, gratified and fulfilled. And so I love being a doula and I love the meaning of doula and don't shy away from the definition of it being woman servant. I love that. Um, so a doula offers emotional, physical, and educational support um, before birth, during labor, and then postpartum. So you... Um Somebody who's pregnant, they, they get in touch with you mm-hmm. and they, um, I mean, how, how would they even know about a doula? Do you, is sort of when they're going and dealing with their, um, OBGYNs and stuff, is that brought up or? Yeah, good question. So, um, for me, my first child was born 19 years ago and I had never heard of the word doula. In fact, I was looking back at baby books yesterday and saw that I was spelling doula D-U-L-A and it's D-O-U-L-A. So it's just something that I didn't know about. Um, but for me, my midwives said, hey, why don't you think about getting a doula? And so from there, I researched it. And that's honestly a lot of the ways that most people find out about doulas is um, either through friends and family who have had doulas or through their OB-GYNs or their midwifery recommendations. And so you really then are with the parent or parents um, from the um, pre, pre-birthing um, yeah. for maybe several months. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So typically folks will reach out to me usually by the second trimester. Sometimes they're really on top of things and that's awesome for them and reach out to me in the first trimester. Um, and then we kind of walk loosely. Um, they always have connection with me, they can reach out via email or text or phone call, um, and then we have prenatal appointments. But yeah, we get to know each other and build a relationship during that time. And then I, of course, join them throughout labor and delivery and postpartum support if they want me. And do they have a particular, um, do, you, do you pinpoint a need? Are they, are they nervous about the process and just think an extra hand is good or they're not nervous, but they know they need an extra hand or, or what are some of the reasons for? Good questions. Um, I mean, everybody's different. Everybody has different needs. Some folks hire me because they just want that um, continuous care, that one person that they know is going to be there throughout the process. 
Um, and even with like home birth midwifery, the midwife isn't there in early labor and she's not there offering necessarily that constant emotional and physical support. They're there as a medical personnel. Um, so I'm there to be able to support them emotionally and physically throughout the entire process. And the beautiful thing is, is that we get to build a really intimate relationship going into it. So it's a team. So it's usually, um, you know, the laboring mom and her partner and then me, and we all work together and really get to know each other so that I know and the partner knows what her needs are going to be going into it and we can really um, support her fully it's a tremendous process and a lot of trust involved obviously tremendous yeah yeah um we are talking with mary humphrey she is a uh, certified doula and uh if you want to join the call or you have questions uh we're at 802-244-1777 so the um you become the troubleshooter, really. You you sort of know the whole gig, mm-hmm. and these may be first-time birthing situations. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things um, pre-birthing in the in the two months before birthing that you might be working on with with the parents? Yeah, so. Um I talk about prenatal appointments and what a prenatal appointment looks like with me is that I come to your home and I fill out all these intake forms with questions. Some of them are really benign. What is your address? What's your birth date? What do you do for work? Um, Just ways to get to know each other more. But then we get down to the nitty gritty. What fears and concerns do you have? What questions do you have? What insecurities do you have? How do you think your partner and I can best support you? Um, What do you anticipate wanting in your labor and delivery? And of course, those things all are very fluid and you can't necessarily know ahead of time what you're going to want, but you can kind of guess. Um, So we talk about birth wishes um, and again, fears and concerns. And then we talk about all of the what if scenarios. So doctors don't necessarily, you know, in their prenatal appointments come to you and say, here's all of the things that can happen in labor and delivery and here's your options. Things happen and then they give you the options. Um, So we get to talk about those things preemptively so that my hope is always that people go into labor um, feeling really um, secure in their decisions and knowing that um, they've kind of made the decisions ahead of time, that if this scenario pops up, this is what I'm going to do. And if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. So we kind of discuss it ahead of time. So it takes out the guesswork. So on the intake assessment, um, I'm gathering also you're looking at um, nutrition for the mom, um, supplement, vitamin, things like that, or is that part of your guidance? I definitely always ask the questions, are you taking any supplements, any medications? And I also ask, do you consume any drugs or alcohol? Um, And then, again, backtracking, I always start the – that process by saying anything I ask you, you don't have to answer. And that goes for you with your medical provider too. You're in charge, you lead the way. Um, but I really want to know my, my clients intimately and that helps. So we're talking this morning with Mary Humphrey. She's a doula. Um, doulas are, um, an amazing part of helping, um, in all aspects of, um, bringing a baby into the world, um, from prenatal to, to the actual, Event of birthing and then, uh, and on. We're going to talk more about that, but I want to welcome to the show, um, Allison Steinmetz, who has, um, who worked with, uh, Mary a couple years ago, I guess, um, when, when Allison, you were having a baby. So welcome to the show. Hi there and thank you. Yeah, it's nice to have you on. So, um, 
can you tell us a little bit about um, sort of choosing the doula, choosing Mary, and and how that how that worked in in um, your experience? Absolutely. Uh, my husband and I looked at a lot of different doulas in our area, and then we met Mary in person, and she was the first doula that we met in person. We met her at a cafe. She brought us a sweet little gift and told us all about her philosophy as a doula, how she could support us. And by the end of that meeting, my husband and I walked out of that cafe and we said, we're done, we're sold. This is absolutely who we have to work with because we knew we were so well-matched in the way we thought about things and our energetics. Um, and that's just all we needed. Awesome. So then from there on, she was sort of with you along the whole journey. Um, you delivered in Burlington, I think. And, um, we did. And, and so what were things that that Mary was able to guide or help with that were significant to you? We did a lot of prep before the labor, like Mary was talking about earlier in the interview, but where Mary really stepped in in the most beautiful way is that during our birth experience, nothing went the way we thought it would go. So we had a birth that didn't go quite as planned, but she was this steady, constant, grounded person who was able to seamlessly float in and out of our birth experience at what seemed to us to be the perfect time. She always knew when we needed a hand, when we needed a voice, uh, and she was really able to help advocate for me as things were changing in my birth experience and help me to get everything I needed while that landscape was always shifting. So that was invaluable support for us. So these were a lot of this you had talked about the, the what ifs and, and so when the what ifs happened, um, she was jumping in and not jumping in. She sounds like she sort of came in with her angel wings and <laughs> helped out. <laughs> uh, so, um, and then, so you, you had a baby and were in the hospital for a bit. Um, did, does the service continue for you? Were, were there, was there more after that? Yes, we had the option of working with Mary postpartum as well, which we did do, and I'm grateful we did, because she came to our house, she did everything. She cooked nourishing meals for us, she cleaned, she taught me things like how to bathe my baby and cut his nails when I was afraid to do all those new mom things. And most importantly, though, I, I feel like she held my baby, but she also held me, and she held me in this supportive emotional way and whether that was by having a cup of tea or helping me to process through my birth story uh, she was just there and it was a time as we all remember you know uh, we had our son in August 2020 and that was really in the height of the pandemic so it was a scary time when we my husband and I chose to not be around really anyone for the safety of us and our son uh, and we allowed Mary into our circle and she really filled that void of support that every new parent really needs and offered that that precious uh, support is the best word I can think, but she offered that precious support in that really scary time during the ever-changing world um, and with no judgment. And whatever we needed, she just picked it right up. So I highly recommend postpartum support for any new parents. Yeah, there's so many. Of course, you're exhausted at that point, um, and it, any help is, is great. So... Um, We'll be talking with your husband a little bit later in the show. Um, is there anything else, so Allison, that that you would that I haven't asked you that you would want to talk about um, with your experience with Mary or having a doula? I think it's hands down one of the best decisions we made during the process, and having that steady support is gold, really. 
I would say, Mary, she filled our hearts and our home with all the love that we needed and the love that every parent or new parent needs. And I would say not only for me, uh, since I am partnered, it was really important to have her to support my partner, too, which I think a lot of people don't think of or don't consider uh, that the birth experience, if you are partnered, is more than just about the birthing person and the baby. It's about that third party, if you have that third party, too, and having that support is invaluable on the team so that everybody's cared for and nobody's forgotten in that process. So, yeah, that's that's what I'd say about that is that it is it is incredible. It is an incredible addition to the unit, I think, to bring a doula and in particular bring Mary into the, into the fold during this time. Yeah, and I love that you raised that it. it's it's not just the birthing mom. There's if it often can be two and it, it you know, as much as we know, we think we know about birthing, um, we don't often <laughs> know some of the intricacies. I'm a, a father of two children and both, uh, deliveries and pregnancies were, were difficult and challenging. So I didn't know about doulas. I wish I had. Um, so Allison, thank you so much for joining us and, and we'll look forward to talking to Cameron in a little bit. Awesome. Thank you both so much. All right. Take care. Uh, we have a caller, um, Brenton from Tampa, Florida. We've got some pretty good radio reach today. They must have uh, <laughs> heightened the tower here in Waterbury. Welcome to the show, Brenton. Hey, good morning. And Mary, I must say you have a wonderful radio voice. Is this my cousin, Brenton? <laughs> this is your cousin, Brenton. I thought so. Thank you, cuz. But I do, have, I do have a legitimate question for you. Okay, dish it. So as, as you know, we recently had a child last year. Yes. We did not have a doula. And I kind of found myself going with the flow of everything, just, you know, wondering constantly and scientifically what was happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious from your perspective, what is the most helpful thing a significant other can do during that process other than just be present? I love that. Well, you're actually saying what I was going to say, which is holding space. If that is a terminology that you understand, just being emotionally present, I think is the best gift. And that's part of what I love about being a doula, especially when there's a partner present, is um, that having that extra set of hands, having that extra body gives the partner um, the freedom to just be. And as a woman who has labored, that was, I also had a doula. um, And that was my favorite part is that my husband was able to just be by my side and be present emotionally. I didn't need him worrying about what was going on medically um, or physically trying to support me, just being there to hold my hand and hold that emotional space, I think is the best gift. Well, thank you for the question, Brenton, and for calling all the way from Tampa. I bet it's a little bit warmer there than it is here in Vermont, uh, and we appreciate you calling. Thanks. Thank you. All right, we're talking with Mary Humphrey. She is a doula. If you want to join the conversation, we're at 802-244-1777. Maybe you're looking, uh, you're pregnant and looking for um, some support. You have some questions. I can say that um, when my daughter was born, we didn't have a doula. We were in, um, we were in the hospital in Burlington and Labor had been extremely long, hours and hours and hours. I think we were in the 
21, 22 hours of labor um, time and things just weren't happening. We were in, in the uh, sort of the room sort of waiting for dilation and all the things that, that you look for to birth. And all of a sudden um, there were, there had been one or two people in the room um, in and out, but then all of a sudden, suddenly I'd say nine people came flying into the room and were manning stations and were, you know, all of a sudden, and then the physician came in and said, you know, that uh, our daughter-to-be's um, heart rate had dropped considerably and that really looked like needed a C-section. And, you know, we, we were so exhausted. It, it seemed like C-section actually was a blessing because we knew we'd finally see the baby, right? Sure, yeah. um, so you see all of these things, right, Mary? That. Yeah. Um, you just never know. You don't. There's no controlling it. I always say, welcome to parenthood. Like, this is it. In pregnancy, there's no control. There's things you can do to take care of your body and mind. But beyond that, things just kind of happen. You have to roll with it. So that does speak to the importance of um, preparation. Yeah. The, the the month or two when, when you're working with the parent or parents mm-hmm. and also – you know, a lot of them do birthing classes as well, which I you, you told me you encourage that as yes. well. The more information, the better, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so we we got about two minutes before the break. Um, what are what are a few more of the things um, in the in the first two months before birthing that that you feel like are wow? This is if you got to remember some top things, what do you want um, parents to be to know? Honestly, just the surrender. I mean, definitely educate yourself, make the decisions, be willing to advocate for yourself. Um, and I really always encourage self-advocacy. I heard you say, and I think Allison said, she was a great advocate. And I'm totally willing to step in and be an advocate. But during those prenatal appointments, one of the th- main things I teach is self-advocacy. So meaning it, once you're going through the process, there are things that you want the doctor to, or the midwife to know, right. you know, how you want things to. Uh, yeah, being willing to communicate your wishes. And then if you come up against anything that isn't um, within your desires, then to be willing to say, well, what are my options? Right. Have a um, conversation. So we're talking with Mary Humphrey. Um, she's a certified um, doula. Her business is Full Circle Doula Services. And we are going to be back for more discussion. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning. It's Brad Perlin on Vermont Viewpoint. This is the Monday show. This is the the show that I'll do um, each week uh, from 9 to 11, WDEV, Vermont Viewpoint. We're talking with uh, doula Mary Humphrey. Um, Mary uh, helps doulas help in in all aspects of of delivering babies, um, the prenatal to the delivery, and then um, the postnatal period. Um, so, with the um, you 
meet with the parents or parent and you um, build up a relationship with them. Um, you get really do an assessment, you told us. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit more about the assessment. What are you, what are things that you're trying to find out that then with that information you're guiding them, uh, during, during delivery and, and during, you know, that period of time. Yeah. Honestly, um, I'm looking for insecurities. I'm looking for what are the areas where they feel like they need that extra support? Do they feel like they can speak for themselves? Do they feel like they know their body? Um, are they afraid? Because all of those things can inhibit the progress of um, a successful labor and delivery. So we talk about, like, where do you hold your tension when you're stressed? Um and so what I'm looking for is things like, oh, well, I hold the tension in my shoulders so that um, the partner and I are able to look at the body and go do, when they're in labor and say, hey, like your shoulders are tense. Let's relax your shoulders. Or maybe they're furrowing the eyebrow and, you know, a relaxed face is a relaxed cervix. So we're looking for um, just relaxing every muscle in your body. Um, so that's one of many things. Yeah, that's, um, I hadn't thought about that, but so when they're more relaxed and when you're taking away some of their anxieties, um, does that mean that their body is functioning better? Exactly. They're, maybe they're dilating even better or quicker or right time that's, or? That's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> if you're holding tension in your face and in your shoulders, then you're probably holding tension in your cervix. Wow. Yeah. And the same thing goes emotionally. If you're emotionally um, unsettled or stressed, then it's going to be harder for you to relax physically. You know, we're emotional and physical beings, so we kind of need that parallel of relaxed mind and a relaxed body. So you talk about some of the things that are, um, you know, people may have, how did you phrase it? What, what their sort of needs were, were, um, they're not, they're not insecurities, but they're just, uh, something that is in their head. Yeah. And it, that could be pain, right? Mm-hmm. Is, yep. is that, is pain intuitively, is that sort of the number one fear of, of birthing or, or not? Um, I honestly think the number one fear of birthing is, and I hate the word, I think I even used it, failure, failure to progress or having a C-section. And it's like, well, there is really no failure. It's a success if you have a baby, if you deliver your baby, that's a success. Um, but no, the number one fear that I hear from people is I don't want a C-section. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that may be sort of old thinking from decades of, of, you know, and like I said, with, with, uh, when our daughter was born, mm. man, I couldn't see her soon enough. We were yeah. so tired that a C-section was like brilliant. Yeah. And, you get to that point for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we have, um, Cameron on the line, Cameron Steinmetz is, um, also worked with, uh, Mary, um, uh, his, his, uh, partner, Allison Steinmetz at the baby. So I want to welcome you to the show, Cameron. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning to you. So, um, you were the partner. There were th- sort of three of you, um, dealing with bringing a, a beautiful baby boy into the world. What were some of the things that you saw, um, with, with Mary's help from, the partner point of view? Well, um, I thought I was going to be a lot more useful in that situation. And something about seeing the person I love more than anyone in such pain for such a long period of time rendered me 
pretty helpless. Um, and Mary was always calm and always attentive and always very reassuring, certainly for Allison, but also for myself. And if she weren't there, I don't know that cooler heads would ever have prevailed. So mm. it's, it's really one of the best decisions I think Allison and I ever made was involving Mary in that process. And we were very lucky to have her there because it was maybe just the week prior that we were allowed to have somebody in the delivery room with us who wasn't just myself due to COVID restrictions. That's right. It was everything in its right time and place. Wow. Yeah, that sounds great. So you, with getting assistance, it, it helped guide, Mary was able to help guide you on things that you could do for Allison as well, sort of during this whole process, I, I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. I I was helped to be present and participating when, when it was appropriate, and certainly <laughs> the person delivering a baby also need space at times, so it's good to be reassured and encouraged in that process. What was, what was some highlight guidance that you remember? And, and I, I will say for myself that I barely remember hardly anything because it just is a blur. But were there some highlight moments when, when you look back that Mary was guiding you on a, a couple specific things that were just, you go, wow, thank, thank goodness for that. Uh, well, I'm not sure how graphic I can get on the radio, but I also, um, it, two and a half years out, I am also still a little hazy on some of the finer details. But um, I do remember something that was really important was that we were we were there working, and by we, I mainly mean Allison, for about 36 hours before the decision made was made to, to go into the operating room. And I think it was about the 20-hour mark. Our labor started at, like, 1 a.m. as well, so it wasn't even like we, you know, woke up, rested, and started delivering. We, we got no sleep for two nights in a row. And around, you know, midnight the second night, she encouraged me to take a nap. And even even something as as trivial as it seems in that moment where some big stuff is happening to just close your eyes like that gave me the strength I needed to continue certainly through whatever everything that happened after that that was pretty major. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful cuz we just think that we can't do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking with uh, Cameron Steinmetz. Um, he and his wife Allison had um, a baby with uh, services of, of Mary Humphrey, who is a certified doula. Um, I asked Allison this, but I'll ask you the same thing, Cameron. Is there something that I haven't asked you that that you felt was really important in the whole doula process, getting getting Mary to help you with with the birthing? Well, um, Mary wasn't our first choice. We did some research. We looked around. I don't say that as that we weighed her against other people. I just don't know that we had met her yet. And, you know, we we had an experience that we didn't, let's just say it didn't leave us with a lot of confidence in the doula process. And when Allison reached out to Mary and found Mary after that, I wouldn't say I was skeptical, but I was less enthused at the, you know, thought of, trying this again when the first experience wasn't that great. And she met Allison for coffee or something like that, or tea, I don't know. And I met her briefly because I was working and I just came to pop in to their coffee date. And I just 
remember thinking like, this is such a nice person. And who do I want to have in the room with me or, or, you know, privy to such an important moment in my life? It would be somebody that uh, I would know maybe, or at least that I felt like I knew. And that's the impression I got from Mary when we sat down together was, wow, this, this person is, is not, this is maybe not the first time our, our, has crossed paths. So mm. it definitely felt like not just that she was the right person for the job, but the right person for our lives in that moment. That's awesome. Um, and I will echo that she's just like the perfect person for all of those things. So thanks for uh, joining us, Cameron, and um, thanks to Allison too. Um, we really appreciate your insights into the doula. I think people don't necessarily know much about doulas, and um, you certainly brought a lot of reassurance to the process. Uh, so thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I love you, Mary. You're love groovy. You. Have fun. <laughs> thanks. Uh, we're going to go right back to the phone lines. Um, we have Brian from Eden. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, how are you? Doing great. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm all right. It's a beautiful uh, uh, bluebird day out here. Gosh. Um, uh, I wish we had someone like Mary. Um, at my son's birth, I, I, I'm, I'm calling mainly because of the references to C-sections. Mm. Uh, well, I, at my son's birth, there were like four people in the room. It wasn't that difficult. He wasn't endangered anyway. And we were up at uh, UVM, and uh, all of a sudden, everyone flipped out, and they ran out of the room, and they were like, we got to prepare him. Um, surgery. We need C-section. And, oh, and while everyone ran out of the room, the doctor, and this is weird because we're both males, and the doctor and I looked at each other, and he said, I, I, I said, actually, I was like, this is a natural birth. Like, Whoop, do we lose you? Yeah. Oh, there you are, Brian. Oh, while they were while they were preparing the uh, room, the the uh, surgery for a C-section, we delivered the baby uh-huh. with absolutely no complications. Uh-huh. And, so glad to hear. And it was and, and it reminded me when you said everyone's biggest fear is C-section. Mm-hmm. That just brought it back. I was like, yeah, it, it, it there's a certain like electricity in the air and panic that happens when a baby's born. Yeah. That is really important. I wish we had a doula there because people like you make everything better. Hey, th- <laughs> thank you so much for the call, Brian. Uh, I was struck by something um, Allison said that you, you know, after you were able to help with things like um, trimming nails and stuff that <laughs> in, might be intuitive to people, but you had. Uh, you had years of experience yourself, right? So sure. it was pretty easy to yeah. – <laughs> some of the things you, you were trained on, some of the things you were trained on in real life. Yeah, figured it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we talk about the, um, you know, the birthing process and um, there are things that happen in the hospital that, um, you know, some women uh, – you and I had talked about um, earlier in the week about – or not earlier in the week, last week about – you know, they're dead set against um, epidurals or, or using pain and they want natural childbirth. But as you pointed out, the world 
happens the way the world happens, right? Um, so what happens when you, a woman has communicated to you that she doesn't want these things, but then during labor, she's changing her mind. Uh, yeah, it happens. Yeah. Yeah, so that is um, one of many things we talk about in prenatal appointments. What are your birth wishes? And more often than not, women want to try for natural labor and delivery, meaning no pain medication, no um, no help. Um, and things change. Sometimes you have a 24-hour labor and you just need rest. Um, so I always ask ahead of time, so you're saying that you don't want to use an epidural. How do you want me or your partner to um, respond if you end up asking for an epidural? And so we just open that line of communication. And some people will say, oh, I... Um, I have a word that I'm going to say, like chicken. <laughs> if I say chicken, then give me that epidural. Um, but other times they, I'll say, well, how do you feel about um, trying other things? How about me giving you some options or goal setting? And most people really respond well to, yeah, I like goal setting. So if I ask for an epidural, um, I'll I'll say, well, you know, do you want to see how far dilated you are? Will that help encourage you to go further? Like, say you're six centimeters, will that encourage you to keep going? Or if you're only three, um, will that change the scenario for you? Um, or just getting up and moving around. So maybe waiting an hour or getting through six more contractions. So just setting goals is one of the main ways that we usually navigate that. But definitely I honor and support women in whatever kind of birth they want to have. So if they are, say, I want an epidural now, we're getting that epidural now. Yeah. And it, from the man's perspective, like we, you know, we take Tylenol and we get <laughs> headaches. You said it. And, and stuff like that. And, and yet you have women who really want natural childbirth mm-hmm. without pain meds. What are some of the reasons? I mean, is there an impact on pain meds to to a baby being born, or is it just really so they have the full experience? I, I'm not even sure about that. Yeah, I'm definitely not the best person to respond to that because that's a medical question. Um, just from experience, um, we know that a natural physiological birth, typically um, un- uninterrupted, will um, be more, again, we use that word successful, which I hate that word, but... Um, you know, epidurals are a tool, so it's a great tool in certain scenarios, but everything has its risks and benefits. So any intervention can have a negative impact is really how you need to look at it. So um, an epidural is a good tool, but sometimes it can stall labor. Right. So let's um, let's get away from the epidural. Yep. Dural, and what are the comfort things that you and the partner and the 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 woman having the baby, mm-hmm. what are the comfort things that you do and um, employ to help with pain management and, and getting through contractions and all of that? Yeah. So hands-on support is great. Um, a lot of times it looks like counter pressure. So doing things like a double hip squeeze or counter pressure on their sacrum or light touch massage or just tickling their head. It depends on what they like, but more often than not, it looks like counter pressure. Um, and anything that a doula can do hands-on, um, the support person can do, also the partner can do. So I always loop them in and, any, and offer um, for them to do that first. And then we kind of, kind of tag team so that everyone is sustained, um, but also so that the partner feels fully involved and feels like they're offering um, all the support that they can as well. Um, other things are offering different positions. So based on how the laboring mother is feeling, sometimes she's feeling um, 
the contractions in her back. Um, so getting into like a hands and knees position can be really helpful. So suggesting position change, movement, water, all of those things. And then UVM specifically, a lot of the hospitals here have things like a birthing bar, stools, um, the yoga balls well, and the little pools or the tubs. And all of those are really helpful tools too. So just making the suggestions. Yeah, no, all of that. And I remember yeah. that, how the, um, the, the, tub that sort of hot water was so soothing and Magic. relaxing yeah. and and the ball you're talking about just sort of being able to sit on that and sort of bounce. I and, still do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they seem to hang around for a while. Oh, yeah. um, we're talking with Mary Humphrey. She is a certified doula. How, how do people get a hold of you if they want doula services? So in my early days, I was on Doula Match, and that's kind of where I got my initial clients. Um, and now it's really word of mouth. So I get a lot of clients through um, word of mouth from Matri, UVM Midwives, and then obviously from client referral. Right. And you are assisting moms with babies in several locations. Is that right? Yeah. So the vast majority of my clients live in the Chittenden County area. Um, I am in St. Albans, so... I do go to NM's Northwestern Medical Center, UVM, um, Gifford, Copley. Those are the four hospitals that I do go to. But more often than not, it's at UVM or home births. And what a, there's a relationship between you and midwives and you and the physicians. Um, are, have you done any home birth uh, with midwives? Or Yeah, I've done a lot of home births with midwives, and I'm a home birth mama, so I have the midwives that are my favorites around uh, Vermont. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of options for moms, right? Um, we have a lot of options. I feel like we need more options in Vermont, and there's midwives here that are working towards, um, for example, freestanding birth centers, something we don't have that, honestly, most of other states do. Okay, and what would that mean, that they would be um, – Midwives would sort of run them and. Yeah, so birth centers are run by certified nurse midwives, which are the midwives that are in hospitals. Um, but it's just another option that feels more like home, that's not medicalized. You don't have the option of things like epidurals, but you feel that safety. There's something about it that feels safe. And then it's easier for a transfer also, because typically those certified nurse midwives then have privileges at the hospital that they would transfer to. Right. So you get the best of both worlds. If everything totally. goes smoothly, you're in an environment that you chose, yeah. you really like it. And then if something occurs that needs greater service, you it's answer. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so um, birthing, um, uh, the the there are a lot of things that happen. I know that, you know, um, even nursing if people are choosing to to nurse their babies are these things that you assist with as well i know yeah. there there are specialists for that um yeah a specialist would be an ibclc which is those people have done years of education um they're masters at all things breastfeeding i am a lactation consultant um and what that is is i can offer kind of that initial um support for breastfeeding and help you navigate some um difficulties i can help um identify tongue ties, lip ties, a poor latch. I can help you um, troubleshoot, like, if you need a nipple shield. There's all kinds of things to help identify. Yeah, so it's A to Z. And then we've, we're have we only about a minute and a half left. Um, the postpartum that you often hear, you know, that there are real um, high 
um, needs mm-hmm. um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and so you're part of that too. You yes. you watch for signs. You help them through the if there's depression or anything like that. You're yeah. you're on guard for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we're talking with Mary Humphrey. Um, we only have about a minute left. Mary, I want to thank you so much. Um, when I was talking with Lee earlier, when we were promoting the store, uh, uh, the story we were, um, he was going, well, what is a doula? And, and I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners, uh, certainly I was, I was not really aware of all the things that you do, but, mm-hmm. You're everything, and and um, we're grateful to Allison and Cameron Steinmetz for coming on and um, sharing their experience yeah. with how valuable they were, you were to them, and and the fact that not everything was as planned. Right. Right. So, th- thank you for being on the show. Thank and, you for having me. Um, and good luck with your next uh, plunge into Lake Champlain. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. This is Brad Furlan, WDEV Radio. We're Vermont Viewpoint. And uh, our next guest, uh, we welcome back uh, monthly, uh, great advocate for elders and others, AARP, um, Elliot Greenblatt. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure, I guess, to be here. <laughs> I always say a pleasure, but you know, the, the news often is not the greatest. So, uh, you know, we'll take it from there. Yeah, well, we we appreciate it because um, you are bringing something that may, um, in fact, save somebody's life in some way, financially, mentally, or otherwise. Um, so very important to our listeners. Um, we're coming in the news, uh, National Consumer Protection Week is March 5th through 11th. If you want, um, tell us a little bit about that. Fraud Watch. Okay. Uh, the uh, Federal Trade Commission, which is really our uh, overseer of the whole scam picture, uh, annually has a week designated as Consumer Protection Week. And it actually is this week. Um, coming up to us, and it's uh, kind of an exciting time. There there are special programs that the FTC has, but it also gives us as uh, AARP Vermont Fraud Watch an opportunity to meet with the public, talk to people, and uh, hopefully keep them uh, safe from falling victim to scams. Uh, Our biggest event during this period is on the 11th. And it will be at University Mall. We'll have a couple tables present, a lot of literature, four or five of our top volunteers who are specialists in areas like law enforcement, uh, Medicare, technology. uh, It's an investment scams. So we have a a very talented crew that will be there from 11 until 5 o'clock. On the 11th. Great. And what a great location. If uh, seniors or others are interested in participating, uh, the University Mall in South Burlington, great place to take an indoor walk, get a little bit of exercise, and then uh, be able to hook up 
um, with your group and and learn more about some of the dangers out there for them. Um, we're talking, you with, know, and I think it. I think it's important also that folks who aren't in uh, this lovely category of being called a senior are just as vulnerable to the scams and to fraud as seniors are. And in fact, the the uh, age group that is most frequently falling victim right now is between 25 and 45 years of age. Wow. So not uh, just seniors. Yeah. And the last time we talked, uh, you told us, Elliot, that um, scams are really increasing. This isn't something that's waning. It's uh, it's it's a real threat out there. It, it's a real threat, and what we've seen in terms of the transformation in in the area of scams and fraud is it's moving out of local actors. It's not somebody down the street who's trying to play games or make a little extra money. But this has turned into an international type of crime situation. So it, it makes uh, adds a new dimension, and it also makes the uh, picture a little dimmer for trying to stop these things from happening. Yeah, and um, we're going to get into some of the um, specifics of that as well. But I'm I'm curious it. You know, can you give us a little sense of um, the climate out there? And this, I gather, is that, you know, we have been more isolated with COVID. Um, who are, if you're helping our listening audience, um, what do they want to be looking for with, you know, with their relatives and, and you know, on sort of the the trouble signs you see that could be headed off at the pass? Well, I think the you know the first step is to be vocal, talk about it, don't hide it. It's not you know, scams are not something that people should be ashamed of in terms of becoming a victim. Uh, as a victim, you are just like any other crime. If somebody pulls a gun on you and says, "Give me your wallet," uh, that's a crime. If somebody pulls a scam on you over the phone or online, that's a crime. And we have to treat it as a criminal behavior, not as a weakness on the part of the person who is losing out in the situation. So I think that's number one. We have to talk about it. Secondly, we've got to be observant, and we have to look for little signs. Uh, and little signs are things like, you know, is it too good to be true? Is somebody really going to give me a $100 gift card if I answer five questions on a survey. If you think so, you're going to fall victim because that's how criminals are able to lure people. Dangle a little money in front of you. It doesn't have to be a lot. So watch for those things. Um, if you're online and you're looking at an email, look at the address of the email. Uh, if it looks official, like it says, uh, this is Geek Squad, and the address is at Gmail, that's a giveaway. That is definitely going to be a scam. So it's, you know, look, being observant, looking, and then staying out of the area of emotion. Uh, what takes down most people is they get emotional. And you need to avoid that. We've got a, we've got a big uh, problem that has developed uh, more to the west of us 
but it will be here probably in another, oh, I would almost say in another few days. Uh, and that is scam police calls. You get a call from Officer Jones at the uh, county, Washington County Sheriff's Office, and he's saying that you failed to report to court on a summons and you owe money or you will be arrested. Uh, and people panic. They get emotional. What do I need to do? Well, the easiest way is pay a fine, and all you have to do is go to your local store, get some Apple gift cards, and you need $250, bring them back, tell me what the numbers are, and we'll take care of it. Wow. And that's even if it doesn't connect the dots. They know they, they haven't been involved in anything, but they just get scared. Right. And, you know, the, the giveaway there is the U.S. government, the county sheriff's office, state of Vermont, they don't accept gift cards. You can't pay your taxes with an Apple gift card or an Amazon gift card. You have to use legitimate funds. So if somebody says, you know, wire me money, uh, use cryptocurrency, wow, uh, things like that. Yeah. That's just an immediate thing. Hang up. It's a scam. Well, you, you raise a really good point, and that is, should we be answering the phone in the first place? Um, are you guiding on that at all? Like when I get a call, a number that I don't know, I just plain don't answer. Uh, what's the guidance on that? Well, it, that's exactly what the guidance is. Don't believe uh, caller ID on your phone because the numbers are spoofed. Uh, quite often they'll use a recognizable number. Uh, it might be a local hospital. It might actually be the police department. And uh, people answer it. And particularly with seniors, we're kind of hardwired. Uh, we were taught by our parents very well. Phone rings, answer the phone, be polite. You don't just pick up the phone and say, what do you want? That, that's not the way we were educated by our parents. So we're hardwired to pick up the phone. And it is really a struggle for many people to just let it keep ringing. Yeah. So last month, Elliot, you and I spoke about um, romance. It was February and, and Valentine's Day and all of that. Now we're coming into um, March, April, which is tax season, um, IRS season. Um, are there frauds around that? Uh, most definitely. You know, people will see a variety of different kinds of frauds. Uh, and you're not immune from them if you filed your taxes. And roughly 45 to 50 million Americans have already filed taxes for uh, the current year. So you may think you're out of the you know the picture, not necessarily. Um, the IRS or any government agency, for that matter, does not text people. It doesn't call them on the phone unless you're already dealing with them on an issue, and they're not going to email you. If there's a problem with your taxes, you will receive a letter, U.S. Postal Service, and. It doesn't threaten. Government agencies are not going to threaten you. And, you know, we like, I think there's this mystique about the IRS in particular. 
Um, most people don't have nice, warm, fuzzy feelings about the IRS um, for some reason. I don't know why. Right. But, uh, but they, uh, you know, they, they hear IRS and, and it's kind of a panic mode that you go into. What did I do wrong? Are they going to come and take my house? Uh, they don't do that. You know, there's a process, a due process that you have to go through. And before they, you know, garnish wages or anything else, you go through a lengthy process that involves, uh, if you wish to, bringing in an attorney. So uh, that's what people have to watch out for. Mm. The other thing that they have to watch out for is to be very careful and, and actually register with the IRS um, and watch your account with them. You can do that online. And if somebody's filing a return in your name to get a refund, you can shortcut that process before you get the letter from the IRS says, uh, why are you doing this? You've already gotten your refund. Uh, we were talking about IRS scams. Uh, Elliot, is there more on that that you want to emphasize or we get into some of the others? Well, I think, you know, we pretty much covered it and, and Folks need to know that the IRS is a responsible agency, and if you know there is a problem with your taxes, you'll be notified, and there's a process. And you even can get a, a tax advocate from the IRS to help you. So uh, I think that's the, the important part. And just sign up online at, at irs.gov to be able to see your account with them, and you'll be able to monitor it, see what the progress is on a possibly on a refund, and see if anybody has actually been able to hack into your account. Okay, great. Um, our next topic of, of discovery here is sports and entertainment ticket scams. Um I hadn't thought about that. Um, what's going on in that world? Well, you know, this came to my attention uh, recently because uh, there's a concert coming up in the summer with James Taylor at uh, Tanglewood. And the tickets are sold out, which it's understandable with a, with a top performer. But what we know about the tickets being sold out is it's not you and me and other folks who are going out and buying a ticket. It's actually large corporations or scammers that use ticket bots, automated calling systems. They purchase all the tickets so that you and I can't get them. And then they put them up for resale on the secondary market, StubHub, Ticketmaster, uh Geek seat, and they raise the price of the ticket as much as a thousand percent. Wow! If you really want to go to the concert, that's what you have to pay. So a six hundred dollar ticket at Tanglewood now is going to cost you three thousand or more. This is no different than somebody on the phone scamming you for something else. Uh, it, it definitely is a scam. It's not a legitimate resale. It's an inflated price. And what people do is they pay it, which in turn encourages the criminal to do this more and more and more. Wow. So, so uh, 
James yeah, Taylor is not singing complicated. wherever, whenever you hear my smiling or see my smiling face. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like I, I happen to be a Yankee fan, and I was sitting. At, I'm sorry, I was sitting at uh, in my seat at Yankee Stadium, and we pay about thirty dollars a game for the seats. Happened to be the last game for Derek Jeter at Yankee Stadium. Uh, talking to the people sitting to either side of me, they paid over six hundred dollars a seat. Wow! For the privilege. This is the type of thing that's happening nationwide. The other area of scamming that we see happening with, with ticket sales for sports and entertainment is resales on uh, social media. It might be Craigslist, it might be eBay, uh, or it might be on Facebook. And what the criminals are doing is they're creating a market for these items by saying, you know, I can't go to the concert, I have these tickets, I'd be willing to sell them to you at a real good price. Uh, the problem is that they don't have the tickets. Or what you get is a reproduction of a ticket. And then... You're out the money, plus you've gone to the venue, and you're stuck. So and be very wary of social media sales, online sales, where you don't know the person who's selling the tickets, yet it seems like a you know another one of these, it's too good to be true. Yeah, I can get that $600 ticket for 300 It's not going to happen. Yeah, wow. Makes you not want to even try to buy tickets because the odds are against you on uh, right up right up right up front. Um, so you had listed um, something in our in our conversation about uh, publishers clearinghouse, and uh, you know there was a day when you hoped Ed McMahon would show up at your door with a check for several million dollars, but apparently that's not happening so much now. Uh, what's publisher clearinghouse scams looking like? Well, what I did was I actually talked to some folks at Publishers Clearinghouse. And the reality, when you win the big prize, they show up at your door. They will say, you are the winner. They will produce credentials. They will have the big facsimile check, the balloons, the confetti. And they'll ask you, do you want to be videotaped? And then they do the thing all over again. They will not call you to tell you you want. You won't get an email. Uh, that's not part of the game. They will notify you by mail if you've won one of the smaller prizes. But as far as uh, you, know, you getting a, a text message or an email saying, congratulations, you've won, uh, it's not going to happen. That's not the way they operate. So be wary, and particularly if you didn't, purchase or enter the Publishers Clearinghouse contest. That's true of uh, all of these uh, lottery-type things. You can't win a lottery uh, for any prize if you don't enter. And the same thing's true with Publishers Clearinghouse. Yeah, and I I must say, and I don't know if this it's probably legitimate, but at one point I had signed up for Publishers Clearinghouse. It was sort of like from the old days. It looked nostalgic, and I did it. And over the course of months, it was some of the most aggressive, what I would 
sort of phrase in my own words, predatory marketing that I've ever seen, um, trying to get me to buy things. And it was quite remarkable. Quite often the, um, the company that has your information sells it. It's one of the things we see with some of the who's who directories. Uh, people think, boy, this is a great honor. I'm going to be in who's who. And they fill out the forms. They put everything that they can into it, all their work experience, education, skills, talents. You don't know what that company is going to do with your data. Will they use it? Will they sell it? So I always caution folks, you know, if it may be an issue where you think you need to be there for job advancement or for ego, but be very careful because some of these organizations are not what they seem to be. Could you give us an example of a sort of a who's who directory um, that, you're, that may may be fine, but but has some risk or? Well, there is a company called Marquis Who's Who. They're a legitimate company. And what they do is they scan newspapers, they get data, and then they find individuals who they feel are eligible to be listed in the book. Uh, that's great. Uh, but there are also other companies that take advantage of the name who's who. And they just collect the data. And quite often, this is even true with Marquee, uh, part of the deal is you send them your data and then you can buy a copy of the book listing your entry. Right. And that's probably, you know, $40 or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, I always, I always tell people, you know, if you want to put your, your data out there, that's fine, but know where it's going before you enter anything. Okay, we're uh, getting close to running out of time, but I want to. Um, uh, there's some closing things that we can offer to to our audience to um, help them. What What are some of the things you you put them on alert for? Well, one thing that we we try and do is get people to sign up for alerts. Uh, there are a number of places that you can go. One of them is actually AARP. If you go to the website AARP dot org slash fraud you can register for i believe weekly alerts from aarp on what's happening nationally you can also sign up with the federal trade commission they are very good at putting out the word of what the latest scams are now it's national but anything that happens in california somehow manages to work its way to vermont so you know you, you may see stuff in the ah, that's not happening around here it will so uh, FTC, the uh, Vermont Attorney General's office issues, um, not very frequently, but issues alerts about specific scams in Vermont. So if you go online to vermont.gov, go to the Attorney General's consumer line, uh, you'll be able to register for that. So those are the ways to keep up. And the important thing is stay educated. You know, this stuff is changing Ten years ago, uh, you know, we were dealing with small-time scammers in the neighborhood. Today, we're dealing with worldwide organized crime that originates in one country, transfers to another, goes into a third one, and then comes here. All right. Well, thank you, Elliot uh, Greenblatt, AARP. We look forward to talking with you in one month. 
In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning. This is Brad Ferlin, WDEV Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, we're here in historic Waterbury, Vermont, and our next guest is probably someone who's been behind the mic a lot more than I have uh, recently and uh, historically. Want to welcome Governor James Douglas. Brad, great to be with you. Yeah, thank you for joining me. Uh, we're on the eve of uh, an important event in Vermont, and wanted to talk a little bit about it. Um, if I if I read your bio, Governor, we would run out of time before we talked about a thing. So I'm I'm going to just let the uh, the the listening audience know that it that it's you, and and they know pretty much all about you. I think um, the the hat that I want to look at though is. You've been, you were a moderator for, for decades in Middlebury and town meeting day tomorrow. Um, want to talk a little bit about the importance of town meeting and, and your experiences. Well, you're right, Brad. I uh, served as town moderator for 33 years. I gave up the gavel, uh, four years ago now. Um, my successor said, Oh, this is wonderful. I'm, uh, starting the job during a pandemic, <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, she's she's doing fine, and uh, we'll continue to to do a good job. Um, I still serve as moderator of our local school district and technical center uh, district, uh, so I uh, haven't uh, gone cold turkey. But I did give up the town uh, moderating responsibility a few years ago. Um, it, it's a it's an important tradition, as you suggested in your introduction, um, one that's um, basically unique to New England. Uh, there are a couple of other um, examples of it around the country, but nothing uh, quite as uh, extensive and, and uh, uh, longstanding as here. And I, I think it's because of uh, uh, the spirit of independence and individuality of, of Vermont from the beginning. Remember that uh, before we were a state, we were uh, individual towns chartered by the royal governor of New Hampshire and then uh, uh, and with contested uh, documents, <laughs> New York. Um, but uh, we're, we're unlike other states that were uh, originally large territories laid out by Congress and then carved up into uh, into uh, municipalities or counties or whatever. Here that we started with the town. And so that's an important unit of government here. And uh, why the spirit of local control continues throughout our uh, deliberations on a variety of public policy questions even today. So I think it's uh, it's it's important to uh, to maintain the tradition of town meeting. It's where everybody gets to be a legislator for a day. Uh, it's truly direct democracy. Uh, it's been uh, um, uh, changed, I guess, to put it neutrally during the pandemic and, and even before then, uh, so that there's a lot more um, decision-making on the Australian ballot rather than at the assembled traditional meeting. But 
uh, it's still a chance for people to weigh in directly that a lot of folks in other parts of the country don't enjoy. Yeah, it's really, I love the term you use, local control. And on Vermont this week, they were uh, saying that there were 180 towns in Vermont that, were, that are going to be on the floor and uh, deciding all sorts of um, issues for the for their own town and and probably some more global uh, issues as well because it, it gets creative I guess as well. Um, so there there are two things that happen. Maybe you can help with this. Uh, towns have Australian ballot, which is sort of the traditional um, fill in a ballot and put it into a machine, right? And then on the floor. Um, what occurs? What what when they gather? What happens? Well, that's when the decisions are made on the spot, and uh, towns may decide for themselves um, um, whether to do uh, uh, business one way or the other. Um, some towns uh, elect officers by Australian ballot, but decide other uh, matters such as the municipal budget. Um, uh, at the assembled portion of the meeting. Uh, others um, also put the budget on the Australian ballot, um, uh, but decide other public questions at the assembled portion. Um, some put only the budget on the uh, on the Australian ballot. It's it's a, it's a uh, purely a, a local discretionary matter, and and uh, one size doesn't fit all. The traditional debate. Brad is um, about whether it's better to uh, to have everybody come together and and uh, make those decisions where you can offer amendments to the budget. Obviously, you can't if it's an Australian ballot vote, uh, and and hear some discussion of the reasons behind proposals from the from the uh, uh, local legislative body, or whether it's better to allow more people to participate um, by having questions decided during the day-long Australian ballot vote, which also allows for absentee voting or now early voting, I guess is, uh, uh, it's called. Um, and um, I always used to say when I was serving as Secretary of State, I'm not going to recommend one over the other. That's really up to you. You ought to decide what best works for your municipality, and and uh, ultimately the people will decide. Um, so it's a uh, Interesting, uh, uh, interesting process. Interesting options. Um, when elected officials are chosen at the assembled meeting, sometimes uh, uh, you don't know who's going to be presiding as moderator. If there's a contest for that position, as there occasionally is, usually not, but but occasionally, and so that can pr- present some uncertainty all by itself. Um, sometimes the meeting has to take a pause while. Folks vote on something by paper ballot, pass around ballots and put them in a box and then have uh, local officials count them. And it takes a little time, but um, but it's still uh, uh, part of the process. And, of course, there's the food, Brad. Um, um, and sometimes uh, municipalities will have a traditional meal at noon um, when they break during the uh, mid, mid part of the day um, and continue their deliberations later and um you know if, if if the agenda items won't draw people to town meeting maybe the meal will well it's fairly neighborly isn't it uh 
So we have a, a caller on, someone who you, who you know, uh, Tim Arsenault Johnson, uh, is joining us from Vernon, also a, uh, a moderator for, for a long time as well. Welcome, Tim. Uh, t- glad that you could call in and you certainly are familiar with Governor Douglas. Well, I have to say I'm probably one of a few people, hopefully there's a many of them that, uh, I have an autographed copy of Robert's Rules of Order with uh, Governor Douglas's autograph on it. And mine came at a Vermont League of Cities and Towns conference back in 1998. I just wanted to spend the uh, the time to uh, say thank you, Governor, for your service. And you are one of the people that uh, I aspire to, although I have no uh, plans or even any faint ambition of ever running for governor. So thank you. <laughs> well, don't rule, don't rule it out, Tim. Uh, you know, uh, never know what the future holds. I, I suppose it was easier to get me to autograph Robert's Rules of Order than to get the late General Robert to do it himself. Uh, I was happy to do so. So, Governor Douglas, they often ask you if you will run for something, but maybe now you can say, "Well, I, I, Dorothy has said no, but Tim Arsenault Johnson would be a fine pick." Well, I think he would. And there are a lot of folks uh, around Vermont like Tim who uh, step up to the plate and serve their communities, um, often without any compensation or for just a token amount. And and um, uh, that's what gives the institution its strength. Um, um, people who are dedicated to their city or town uh, coming forward and saying, yeah, I'll step up to the plate and do that. And and um, serving as, as moderator is uh, um, we hope an uneventful responsibility, but uh, you have to be ready when the unexpected occurs, some procedural uh, challenge. And that's why, as, as Tim uh, alluded, uh, um, for some time there have been moderator workshops uh, held uh, in the old days by my office, the Secretary of State's office, more recently by the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. And it's a good chance to... Uh, I get a refresher, uh, usually in February of each year, on on uh, what the law is and what the procedures are, and um, it's it's, uh, it's good to have that tune-up. Yeah, and uh, Tim, you and Governor Douglas both have had um, you have had a long career in radio, and Governor Douglas, you you had a span as well. So you're not only moderators but radio men as well. And I would tell you, Brad, that uh, I was very touched on the night that I was inducted into the Vermont Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame that Governor Douglas sent me an email just congratulatory on that night. Uh, wonderful. Well, Tim, thanks uh, for, for chiming in and for your service not only as moderator but uh, Vernon Town Clerk and and your contribution on radio. All of those things have been amazing uh Step up Vermont kind of things. Well, thank you. Uh, bless you, Brad, and uh, go get them, Governor. All thank right. You. So, Take care, Tim. Have a good meeting. <laughs> we're talking this morning with Governor Douglas, who, among many other hats in his career, was moderator in Middlebury for 33 years, um, which is quite a long time. I, I mean, you. This is with your neighbors across Vermont. Their, their neighbors gather. Um, they socialize. As you mentioned, there was lunch, maybe a free lunch, which they say there's not supposed to be that, but there are in many communities, which is great. 
Um, and I was looking, Governor, at the handbook for Vermont moderators that the Secretary of State's office puts out, and it is remarkably intensive, the things that you have to know as moderator. Uh, when you started that first year, did you have much under your belt because you observed it, or did you have to study, or how does that work? Well, uh, no, I really uh, um, observed my predecessor, who was a uh, local attorney who served um, uh, for about half as long as I did till he moved out of town, um, and um, uh, considered him a, a real mentor. Um, I, it was a uh, some, uh, around then, about halfway through my tenure as Secretary of State, that I assumed the gavel in Middlebury, and I thought, you know, um, it, it's uh, it's fine to learn on the job, but um, maybe there can be some kind of uh, structure guidance that uh, we could offer, especially based on the experience that I was beginning to uh, accumulate at that point. So, um, my longtime friend and deputy Paul Gillis and I. Um, Thought well, let's let's put a, a little handbook together, and and we also, as I mentioned earlier, uh, started a, a series of moderator workshops so that um, uh, moderators or those who aspired to be could come and and interact with their counterparts and and learn from the experiences of others. And uh, Paul, to his credit, would look through the minutes of um, a large number of municipal meetings from the preceding year and um, identify uh, problems that arose in in the uh, process of conducting meeting and meetings or or kind of glitches that uh, needed some uh, uh, forethought um, um, anticipation and so we we put together a, um, a bunch of those and 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 when we have the workshops I'm sure it's uh, true today with the VLCT um, you know there, you, you you consider circumstances, um, uh, most of which will not arise, but uh, in the unlikely event that one of them does, it's good to have thought it through and, and to be prepared uh, how to how to deal with it. So um, it just seemed like a logical extension of the informal advice that we were giving out at the time, and uh, I, hope it's, uh, I hope it's been useful in the intervening years. I'm sure that it has, and, and we would call... Uh, the town meeting day really democracy in action is that a good description it's people showing up they they want to know what's what they're being charged for taxes what the issues are and that kind of thing and they get to voice their opinion exactly right um, um they they may question their town officials we hope they do it respectfully uh, and then ultimately uh, um have the opportunity to vote on uh, town budget or other questions that are on the warning, and um, uh, it's a time to interact with one's neighbors. Uh, um, even if you have a different point of view, um, I think it's good that people come together. And that raises another interesting point, um, Brad, that during the pandemic, uh, uh, we've resorted a lot more to Zoom meetings of all different kinds. Now, uh, you can't have an actual town meeting on Zoom because you don't know who's tuned in. Um, and only voters may participate, but it just seems to me it's uh, it's a lot easier to be less cordial to someone on Zoom than if you are in the room with that person and, and have to interact on a, uh, a three-dimensional basis. So I think that's another reason why I'm glad to hear that uh, 
uh, a strong majority of our towns are, are back to the traditional meeting, and I hope that uh, in the not-too-distant future, they all will be. Yeah, so you become, you're in charge of the room as moderator. Um, what are some of the things that are expected or are there the unexpected? If I came in with a personal gripe and I wanted to suddenly change some of the rules in my town, can I do that just by showing up and how, how would that work? No, that's why uh, we have a warning where the, the items of business are laid out in advance by the selectmen or school board or city council or wherever it might be. Um, and uh, there is a rule uh, on germaneness so that um, if you're talking about um, purchasing a fire truck, for example, if that's what the article uh, suggests, you can't say, oh, well, I think while we're at it, we ought to buy a new uh, um, dump truck at the same time. No, I, I, bring it back to another meeting <laughs> and, and let people have fair warning um, that that's an item that's going to be brought up. Uh, so you can't uh, change things without uh, without uh, some notice. I, I think that orderliness is important. Now, under other business, at the end of the meeting, um, anything goes more or less. That's a time to uh, raise issues, to... Um, perhaps criticize uh, municipal officials on topics that are unrelated to what's being actually acted on that, that day or evening, um, or to uh, make announcements or to, um, uh, we always allow candidates for office to introduce themselves, uh, not give a long campaign speech, but just say hello. Um, and, um, and as you pointed out earlier, it's a time to bring up issues of um, national or even international import, if that's on people's minds. And there's been a big debate through the years as to whether that last uh, category is appropriate. But my feeling was, you know, it's not binding action at that point. It's just a chance to sound off. Um, Town meeting is an opportunity when people can come together. And, you know, there aren't many of those. So, yeah, as long as people are polite, uh, I think they ought to be able to say what's on their mind. And when you're up uh, moderating the meeting, do people raise their hand? Do you? You must have gotten to know. Of course, you're famous for knowing everybody's name in Vermont. Um, but you get to know names. Are they recognized by the moderator in order to speak? It's it's fairly orderly in that fashion. Yes, and even when we get into uh, items that are fairly contentious, and we've had a few uh, uh, spirited debates through the years, um, people are still respectful of the process, and um, uh, we want to be sure that uh, people speak into a microphone because our meetings are broadcast on the local access TV uh, station, and um, it's easier for the clerk who's, uh, and uh, uh, others who are taking minutes or notes to uh, to hear people when they use the mic. So. Um, I always insist on that, and and uh, people are uh, uh, understand it, and and it seems to have gone quite well. Yeah. So in at, I was a justice of the peace for many years, and when we did election uh, items, when we were when we were at the polls, and when we were counting, the clerk was in charge of of the process. Is is the clerk in charge of the moderator, or are you separate from the clerk's power? It's the latter. The, the clerk is the presiding officer at an Australian ballot election, so he or she um, decides how to set it up, whom to 
put on particular responsibilities and and lead any discussion of a dispute uh, if one comes up. But the moderator is in charge of the assembled meeting, and the law is quite clear on that and says that he or she uh, shall ensure that uh, only voters participate. And so um, um, we have a uh, a stanchioned off area for, for non-voters, and I think a lot of towns do that. Uh, but it's the moderator who, uh, who who is in charge of the process at an assembled meeting. So uh, you were elected each year um, from the floor? Is that how it worked? No, in Middlebury, all officers are elected by Australian ballot. So uh, um, I had to uh, circulate petitions just as I did for my legislative and state offices. So when I ran for moderator, I did that 33 times. Wow. Uh, but fortunately, I was, was able to get enough support. And were you challenged over 33 years? No. No. Well. I, I never was. Uh, I think most moderators are probably not uh, contested uh, around the state, but, but, but some are, and that's democracy. Yeah. So I... I was just kind of Googling and looking, and I saw some names. Of course, Tim Johnson Arsenault, long time. Uh, yourself, uh, John McClowry seemed to hit over 50 years and maybe still is doing it. Uh, Tim O'Connor, who was fairly famous in Brattleboro for Speaker of the House and moderator. I remember Ted Tyler from the Franklin County days. Uh, so there, there were quite a few put in years and years like yourself. Well, and I think it works well when you pick someone who is respected in the community because if he or she needs to make a difficult procedural decision, then you want to have that gravitas. So um, I, I think it's important to pick someone um, uh, whom the, the voters will look up to and, uh, and whose rulings will be, will be respected. Well, 33 years unchallenged. I think they did that with you, Governor. I thank you so much for your time today, and we hope that everyone participates in town meeting day tomorrow and that democracy in action happens. So thank you, Governor. Thank you, Brad.